0: I started to feel really insecure, and I started just feeling down. I started to feel like a therapist trying to do therapy inside a bar with drunk people. Because Toxic Shame says, I didn't just make a mistake. When I make a mistake, I am a mistake. We have the exact same physiological reaction in our body with shame as we do with trauma. The function of shame is a social emotion that's designed to keep us from being exiled. They say that our ancient brain, our limbic system, it functions 25 times faster than our modern thinking brain. And the brain is programmed to prioritize the negative variables than the positive variables. And when people say, don't compare, what I wanna say is, You absolutely neurologically cannot help that. Your body is wired to try to compare, am I part of this or am I not? Every single human being will have this experience. It's universal and it does not select or discriminate against anyone. We will all have it under the right conditions. The very solution my brain is offering me to get more information is the very thing that's causing the problem. So expecting ourselves to not ever feel body shame or not having a shame response or trauma response is like expecting
1: back everyone to diary of an empath. My next guest today is Dr. Sean Horn. She is a licensed psychologist, author, podcaster like myself. She's a talk show host and a TEDx speaker. I'm so excited because I've been wanting to do an episode that talks about shame. We don't talk about that enough. So, uh, Dr. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, tell me a little bit about your background and how did you even get into this niche of shame? Because I feel like it's a very unique niche to focus on. So, I'm really curious to how this ended up coming about for you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a licensed
0: clinical psychologist, and I've been in the mental health field for about 30 years now. And so in the mid-90s, when I was in my doctoral program, they had a shame specialist come and teach a course on shame psychology. And as I was in there, she made a comment saying shame, toxic shame, is at the core of all of our emotional and behavioral Uh, struggles. And at that time I was pregnant, I was about to have a baby and I'm like, Oh my gosh, how do I make sure I don't shame my children? I need to know about this. If it's that central, that important, then we need to all know about shame. So at that moment, it became my mission to educate people about shame and toxic shame and so forth. And I actually wrote a book on it called uh, shame-free parenting in the late nineties. But the last minute, the publisher, pulled out and said, you know, we've changed our mind. We think shame is an aversive topic and people will have shame about shame. So we're not sure we're going to be able to market it. And about five years later, Brene Brown came out and all her stuff blew up. And then all of a sudden it became on the consciousness of everyone. And they're like, I need to know about shame. I'm like, yes, we do. So Mm -hmm. this has been a message that I've been giving for over two decades to teach people about what toxic shame is. We talk about it all the time. We just don't call it what it is. We, we use other words that make it more digestible.
1: Yeah, and maybe sometimes people don't exactly know what word to put towards what they're feeling too. And I right. think that's definitely sometimes what we see. So let's just keep it simple right now. What is shame? How do we define that? What does that look like? Okay, so I'm gonna define guilt. Healthy shame and toxic shame.
0: So guilt is what I feel when I violate my standards. Healthy shame is what I feel when I violate your standards. So it's a social emotion exclusively. And toxic shame is what I now come to believe about who I am because I violated your standards. So we go from a personal conviction, which is guilt, a social correction, which is healthy shame, an identity condemnation, which is toxic shame. And healthy shame, we say, this is good. We wanna have healthy shame. This helps us have structures in society, helps us be appropriate to be safe, And to, you know, kind of fit the social customs that that keep our society safe. And we all know what it looks like when we have people that don't have appropriate healthy shame, they end up being quite dangerous to our world. So we want to have that emotion, but toxic shame is where it really goes south on us that when that kicks in, that becomes so enmeshed with one's identity that it's almost like a cancerous uh, condition to our personal freedoms, to the way we perceive ourselves, It changes our self-esteem, and then we, we do behaviors to mask it. So we engage in things like perfectionism, people-pleasing, Uh, becoming a workaholic, and things that we present to the world to say, see, I am good enough. Because toxic shame says, I didn't just make a mistake. When I make a mistake, I am a mistake. I'm fundamentally flawed, defective, different from other people. And so because we hold that identity, we want to prove to the world and to ourselves mostly that I am acceptable, I am okay, and, and this is how you will measure it. So social shame is definitely this, this, what's most interesting about the difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is measured at six years of age when we have the development of complex thinking, but shame is measured at 15 months of age without complex thinking. It's an instinctual emotion that is in our autonomic nervous system. And it literally mirrors a trauma response. We have the exact same physiological reaction in our body with shame as we do with trauma. And for that reason, we're now calling shame a social trauma that is related to a developmental trauma that we get early in life and it just carries on through us and we get all the same uh, symptoms like you do with other trauma conditions as we do with shame trauma.
1: I love those definitions and how you broke it down. When I'm hearing you talk about the connections of shame and childhood, I love talking about the nervous system. If anyone's listened to my podcast, they know they're probably like experts on the nervous system now, but I would love for you to talk about some of the connections of the nervous system and trauma and how shame fits into that. I, my favorite model of the nervous
0: system is polyvagal theory, so I, I consider myself polyvagal theory informed. And in that theory, we've identified that there's three different levels or states to our nervous system. Best way to to um, think about, about it is like a traffic light. When you're in the green zone, you feel comfortable, you're at peace, you're grounded, all is well. You can be creative. Your mind is in the most optimal condition. You are moving towards people. You have motivation. Everything's great. But then something activates us. Something triggers our nervous system. And then we get all the chemicals that begin to charge up our body, getting us ready to fight or to flee. And this is the sympathetic nervous state, the yellow zone, which is where we feel a sense of urgency. We feel irritable, anxious. Um, I got to go I got to get out of here kind of a a feeling and when we're in that zone we our body is responding as if we're being charged by a wild animal or as if we are going to be significantly endangered so if I cannot run from the danger if I cannot escape from the danger then I go to the next state which is the red light state where everything begins to shut down And in that state, that's where we start to go numb. We can have a high pain tolerance. We can have symptoms of dissociation. We can feel helpless, hopeless, depressed. What's most interesting is if you look at a polyvagal chart, you'll see that the emotion of shame is listed in that red light zone. It lists depression, hopelessness, and shame. Shame freezes us, just like trauma. Trauma, we either freeze, we shut down, trying to think, if I don't move maybe this predator will leave me alone and I won't die or maybe it won't be so painful if I if all my body's um, s- sensory systems change to where it's not so painful so we're we're programmed to shut down to withdraw to freeze and of course some people do it's called fawning where you move towards the predator trying to please them trying to get their. Um, approval and so forth. And with, with toxic shame, you see that where people will lean into a social group trying to appease them and make sure that they are liked, that they are included, that they're not exiled. The function of shame is a social emotion, a social adaptive emotion that's designed to keep us from being exiled. It's all about staying connected. If I can stay connected to people, I can survive. But if I lose connection to my parents, to my group, then I might die. So shame says, do not do this like a really firm response it's like an emotional spanking that says do not do this thing because you will be exiled if this happens so for that reason we stop dead in our tracks if someone if if we get a shame reaction from another person it will freeze us and everything shuts down and we can't think and we can't decide and we can't speak We're, we're really frozen and it's very hard to collect ourselves when we're having a shame experience neurologically. So when someone is shamed because it is involuntary and is part of that nervous system, it kicks in before we can even think. They say that our ancient brain, our limbic system, it functions 25 times faster than our modern thinking brain. So we might have a reaction but have no idea why we had that. And we search for the why. We don't like that we don't know. Why am I feeling this way? Why is this happening? And so that's where we make the mistake of coming up with personal narratives to make it make sense when it doesn't make sense. But when it comes to a shame response, we may not know why. We may not know why all of a sudden we feel compelled to withdraw. But what we can do is learn what the symptoms look like so we can recognize, oh, I'm having a shame activation. And then we can use our tools and our skills to kind of help ourselves through that.
1: Such good points because like you said, we still, you know, we think because we're in modern times, right? We are used to technology, but the reality is, is that technology has not been around a long time. In our entire existence of being human, even electricity has not been around a long time and our brains just simply have not been able to keep to catch up. And I think naturally our brains want to make sense of the world around us. They It wants to make sense of what's going on. So I think your description of that is spot on how sometimes we want to make sense of why we're feeling the way that we do. But oftentimes, more than not, we may not always understand it. But our nervous system literally remembers trauma, it stays, it stays stagnant in the body. So I would I wrote down two things that when you were talking about this, um, and it made me think about COVID and how COVID really changed the way that we interacted with each other. And I also thought about social media. How do you think that those two things impact shame? Yes.
0: This is what my TEDx talk was all about, is this very thing, because it's my belief that it is because of this change in communication that we're seeing the increase in mental health struggles in the last four years. So what you're talking about is neuroception, and neuroception is this radar that's constantly going from our nervous system, scanning the environment, looking for really specific cues to know, am I safe in a social context, in this environment? And it, it specifically requires that I am face-to-face with you, that my eyes see your eyes, that we're in sync with our timing, that I can hear your voice, I can see your facial expressions in your eyes, and if it likes what it sees in your eyes, and if it likes what it hears in your voice, then it will say, oh, all's well, I'm safe, and then it will cue that we can go to the green light. But if it detects that something is amiss, something is wrong, then it will activate that fight and flight. And it won't be resolved until I get in a social context that says, oh, now I'm okay. So what happens to the brain, like you were saying, we had all these years to adapt, but we've only had this very short period to adapt to digital communication, to communicating in in these unique ways that we're doing now. So when we have interpersonal social interaction on non-human devices, human interaction on non-human devices, our neuroception sounds the alarms and it reads it as I am in danger. And when it cues that it's going to make us feel, we're going to feel bad, like just really bad. That's what people are going to say. You're going to use that word. They're going to feel depressed or down or or even really anxious. They're not gonna want to talk to people. They're not gonna want to approach people. They're gonna wanna pull back, isolate, not go to that engagement, not call that person, not return that text and so forth. But the neuroception is still seeking where is the danger? So at the same time that we're compelled to pull back and retreat, we're also compelled to gather more variables, more signs of danger. So what that looks like for us is that we lean into these platforms where social interaction is occurring, which is social media. We lean into it saying, what's going on here? Am I fitting in? Was I invited? Am I liked? Who's responding to me? And you're looking for the cues. It says, do I belong? Am I wanted? Am I accepted? Am I liked? Or am I not? And the brain is programmed to prioritize the negative variables than the positive variables so for our survival right so it's going to look for all the ways we're not connecting or someone didn't message us or respond and so because we're we're continuing to get this we lean more and more and more and this is where people start to compare and compete and when people say don't compare what i want to say is you absolutely neurologically cannot help that your body is wired to try to compare. Am I part of this or am I not? But because we have this modern brain, we can catch it and we can use that as biofeedback to know like, gosh, I'm, I'm not feeling good. I'm starting to compare with other people. OK, pull back. What's going on? Oh, I've been talking to people on Zoom. I've been texting. I've been emailing. I haven't been face to face with my loved ones. And I've been pretty isolated. I'm starting to compare. I'm having a shame reaction. I'm having a shame trauma, biophysiological response in my body. It's not personal, has nothing to do with who you are, your story, your experience, your um, anything about the person personally. Every single human being will have this experience. It's universal and it does not select or discriminate against anyone. We will all have it under the right conditions. So that's where we want to use that biofeedback, pull back and get into a more natural environment, be with people that you feel safe and and that you love, or be with your pet or go outside, ground yourself in nature. But we need to connect with earth and life in the ways that our ancestors did, understood and knew, and not in the modern ways that our ancient brain has not adapted to quite yet.
1: Yeah, those are really great points. Social media, I struggle with, I feel like I have this love hate relationship, you know, as content creators, it's part of our, our business, it's part of our job too, right? Like we're creating content about ways to help other people. So I feel like for me, it's like, okay, it's got this good intention behind it. But at the same time, why am I feeling bad that User five nine six ten said that I talk too much on my podcast, and why is that triggering me right now? Yes, yeah. <laughs> when I don't even know who this person is, why am I comparing myself to another podcaster because they told me to, and I don't even know who this person is? Versus if someone said that to me in person, I probably would have been like, "Yeah, you don't know me."
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, that's exactly what got me saying this in the first place was. About four years ago, I thought, why did I abandon my dream? I'm not going to abandon this dream. Maybe I can still publish that book. It's a new time. We can self-publish. I can connect with that publisher. And I did. And now they wanted to know what was my social media um, handles? How many followers do I had? And they required that we were, um, on these platforms and building these communities. And so I started that effort. And of course, everyone who's trying to grow their Instagram, you get into these little hubs of people that, Mm -hmm. that support each other's uh, posts. Right. So in this private discussion, everyone's talking to each other and I'm messaging back to them saying like, Hey, I'm commenting to what they're asking and nobody's acknowledging my comments. And I started to comment more, and they're still not acknowledging. I'm thinking, this is really bizarre. So I screenshotted the conversation, and then I privately messaged someone saying, are you seeing this? And she screenshotted her uh, information, and my comments were intermittently missing. Instagram Hmm. did not post all of my comments. So it's like you're having a conversation, and as you're talking, the person goes silent, silent, randomly so it literally showed up like i was not in the room but everything about it communicated to me that i was in the room now this is a group of mental health providers and so we all start talking about it so we all start sharing each other's screens and we see that some of our posts aren't being shown to some of them but to others some of our comments are shown to this select group but not that select group that you're in a conversation, but it showed that you weren't there. And all of us, all 15 of us had the exact same experience. And when that happened, I realized it was really messing with us. And mm. when that started happening, before I understood it, I started to feel really insecure. And I started to doubt myself. And I started just feeling down and negative. And I'm like, the you know, lots of energy positive person typically. So this, it doesn't make sense that I'm feeling depressed, that I'm feeling like I don't want to talk to people. And so when that happened, because I'm a scientist, I start observing that and saying, this is unusual. This is not my go-to. It doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. So what is happening here? And then as I started researching it, it brought me to this information that hadn't quite been, it's, it's People are sort of talking about it, but not as directly as I outlined in the TED Talk. And that's part of TED Talks. So you have to have a, a, um, a unique idea that's worthy to be shared is their like tagline, right? So you have to have a unique idea. And so mine was that social media does activate this shame trauma response because of the way it is. But I discovered that through my own journey of it head tripping me. And here I am, a 50-year-old woman who's been established, I'm, I'm well known in my community. I'm, I'm do very well professionally. So there's no reason for me to be having an experience of where I'm doubting myself and I'm doubting my professionalism. So this was really, uh, it was a very intense experience. And, and then when I discovered all this, I started to feel like a therapist trying to do therapy inside a bar with drunk people. (laughs) that's how it's a great analogy (laughs) that's how it felt being on social media like you know giving mental health stuff on social media and I was really conflicted because I'm on a platform where people literally are drinking like they're drinking the alcohol right and they're getting intoxicated with the negative hormones but they don't know it they don't know that they've got these They're saturated with this persistent level of cortisol and adrenaline and dopamine highs that are causing them to have dopamine crashes, and I'm participating in this. And yet, if I want to chase down my dreams, these, these people, the dream makers that can make that possible, are requiring that I'm showing up on that platform. So it's kind of how we market, how we get exposure. If it's not there, it's on YouTube or somewhere else. So you're really conflicted. And that's when I started feeling like, you know, it's the same as if I just hung my shingle inside a beer and say, come in, have some drinks and we'll do therapy, you know? And I, I, um, I just. Really want to advocate to people that they limit their exposure and, and have more human interactions, if possible, than digital interactions. We can build resilience if we have more interpersonal time than actual digital time, or we really are intentional of being present with another human or in human environments, then that we feel comfortable. That's really important. If you don't feel comfortable, you're going to be hypervigilant because your neuroception is going to say there's danger among us, Right. So we just need to make sure we're in those comfortable environments. And then it builds up our fuels, our fuel storage, so that we're not as activated. And I've had situations where I've talked about this in women's circles, and some women go, oh yeah, that, never, that doesn't happen to me. I'm, I'm like good on social media. But then you look at their social media posts, and they're, they, let's say they're a florist, and they're, they're posting all flowers. There's no personal risk in that. They're not, there's nothing about them that's showing up, their voice, their appearance, their story, their journey, right? But those that are showing up saying, this is me, this is my story, I'm, I am the product, I am the voice, the appearance, the, the message, then we are in a very vulnerable situation and more prone to have those kind of social um, triggers of shame than someone who's showing up very risk-free where they're just doing uh, non-personal posting. It's it's different ways of showing up on social media. So sometimes when people will say, I don't have these things happen to me, that can trigger a shame response at someone else because they're like, well, why is it happening to me? You know, it's not mm-hmm. happening to you. Why Why is it happening to me? And it's, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not happening to them because sometimes people may not be aware, they may not be attuned, or they may be really def- defended, have a lot of defense mechanisms kicking in, and so they're not aware of what's going on inside their body. Trauma causes us to to um, break our attunement to our bodies. You know, like if someone's an empath and they've had a trauma, like, uh it's possible that some empaths can think they're not empaths because they've learned to shut it off they've learned to gaslight themselves to say it doesn't exist they're making stuff up and and so they need to really reconnect so people can go in either direction they get either more empathic right more spidey feelers or Mm -hmm. they can just like shut it down and think nope i'm good and you know both of those things are possible
1: Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader. It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. I'm the the super feeler, you know and and probably having to do with a my own trauma. B, you know, I'm also very psychic in many ways. Many of them, all my listeners know i'm I'm very spiritual and so I think it's it it plays both parts. But for me, if I'm honest, social media is very much a trauma response for me and I never connected the two. I always thought, it's habit. This is just a bad habit that I formed. And the more that I'm talking to other people, the more that I'm learning that I deflect, I go on social media, not just because I'm running a business, but I'm also going on social media because I'm trying to connect in ways that maybe I'm not connecting in person, I'm doing things in order to make myself feel something sometimes. And I think that's my reason for sometimes going on there, even though I don't always feel good doing it. Even though I know I'm, you know, that the dopamine is is probably being (laughs) flooded and then taken away because I'm on there too much, but I I sometimes do it knowing that I shouldn't be on my phone until two o'clock in the morning, scrolling through Instagram or, you know, scrolling through TikTok, but yet I find myself doing it over and over again. And I'm just now getting to the point where I'm consciously saying I have to do something else in order to cope with my alone time. If that means sitting with my thoughts, that's sometimes very uncomfortable. Like I have to practice more mindfulness in order to do it because sometimes literally taking my phone and putting it in another room is very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that because especially going through COVID, we learned to depend on technology for connection. And some people got a little comfortable doing that because sitting with your thoughts is very uncomfortable. And so I love those points that you made.
0: Yeah, I mean, it literally is activating a trauma response in your brain. So most of the time when people say, oh, it's activating trauma response, like we think of it more thought related. That uh, someone said something that was related to my bully when I was younger, and so I had this activation. But what's so important for people to know is shame mirrors that trauma response, exact same dynamics, exact same chemistry, and it will activate as we're on that longer. So we will literally have a trauma response. And so, just so important we realize that and not personalize it and not say it was me, but to know that the longer I'm on there, the more at risk I am. And at the same time, the very thing that I'm going, the the very solution my brain is offering me to get more information is the very thing that's causing the problem. It's like turning to the drugs to feel better because the drugs are making you feel worse. So you got to do the drugs again. You know, it's that addiction loop, but it's more complicated than just addiction. It's the addiction is the dopamine, but then you have just the neurological autonomic nervous system activation that is on board as well.
1: Oh, yeah, very well said. We were a society of dopamine addicts. I, I talk about that often because and it's not our fault. It's designed to do that. Like social media is literally a never ending scroll. And there's a reason for that. When you're in Vegas, there's a reason why the lights are always on and there's no windows. There's a reason why the slot machines are, you know, scrolling the way that they do. It's very psychological. So it's not your fault. It's designed to do that. It's it's very, very much the intention uh, to try to keep you on as long as possible. And um, unfortunately, I think we all have fell victim to that. Um, going back to childhood, because we're talking about the nervous system and trauma, I'm really curious to your thoughts at childhood development and the psyche when there is a child who's being shamed by a parent. So let's say the shame is coming from the parent and is now being put onto the child. How does that affect them as they're growing up? Shame does come from our early childhood experience, a parent, a
0: sibling, um, an organization, teachers, but it's we, as children, we, we, look to these people as these giant mirrors to tell us who we are. Am I likable? Do I belong? Am I talented, lovable? All these things. And we take the message of what they say and what they don't say, how they touch us or how they don't touch us as like God's word about who we are and adopt it into these core beliefs of I am, and then go through life collecting evidence to prove that those messages indeed were true. And we're very motivated to prove they're true. Even, and, and a lot of therapists don't realize this. When we are in therapy and we say, good news, this is not yours. Your parents were abusive. they were emotionally abusive. It doesn't belong to you. How they treated you is more to do with them than it was to do with you. In that very moment, we create a psychological crisis for them. Because as children, our brains are saying our parents are godlike. I am hundred percent dependent on them for everything. And if they're unable to meet my needs, psychological needs, physical needs, that is a state of living terror. That means I am living every day in this state of terror, not knowing, am I going to be okay? Am I going to have food, a roof? What's going to happen? Life is not predictable. And children need their world to be predictable and connected. So when we get shamed, and it can be very big, like we think about with emotional abuse, like a parent calling them names and belittling them and so forth. But it can also be very small, micro-shames of, uh, honey, you've gained a little weight, don't you think? Mm-hmm. You sure going to wear that? I don't think people are going to like it if you show up like this, right? We get these little messages that tell us, don't behave, feel, look, act, like however. And when we get these little doses and we see them in the media and all these things, we can get um, we can experience this shame. So shame, because it's motivated to keep us connected, when we are shamed, we have a break in the connection. And what we call this is the interpersonal bridge of connection that like imagine a, a little picture. You have the little person and the adult and their little hearts and there's a little rainbow connecting their hearts and the parent got mad at them, or was absent, or unavailable, or something happened, and there was a rupture in that connection, we require that there is a repair. And the way that we get the repair is by them coming in and making it right. You know, if they got mad, say, honey, you know, I love you. This behavior wasn't okay, but I love you. You know, they mend it, or there's there's some connection that happens again. But if there is not a connection from that adult, we will vicariously build that connection by owning it. It's not my parent that's unable to parent me. It's me. I'm the problem. I can live with that reality. I can't live with the reality that my parent is unable to parent me, but I can live with the reality that I'm fundamentally flawed. So here you grow up and you're an adult and you get this message of like, guess what? You're not flawed. This is great news. Now two things happen. One, you get angrier than a bees hive. Like, oh my word, you mean they did this to me? Like my whole life has been affected like this. I've struggled with these things because of their failure to parent me uh, in the way that I needed and so forth. And then you go through tremendous grief. Grief for your childhood, grief that you lost that, that you didn't have what you needed. And if we say to that person that their parent is not able to be ever really the parent they need or want because of some fundamental thing that's going on for them, like let's say they've got, um, they have a personality disorder or they're narcissistic or they're, um, you know, maybe at Odd, on the autistic spectrum or something's going on where it's like or, organically this is what we got with their brain and so they're they're not able to be attuned to you in the way that you need it, you need them to be when they really come to terms with that then they experience grief over the death of the dream and the hope that maybe someday this can be repaired and sometimes that's so overwhelming for people they'll go nope I'm flawed it's much more comfortable It's much safer and we can continue to pretend that it wasn't as bad as it was and our parents are really able to love us and be there some way, somehow, if not now, maybe sometime in the future. And this is a really hard place for a lot of people to be. We can heal that. That's the hope. It's like you don't, it doesn't have to be so painful. It really, it is painful, but we can walk through that pain and we can create a newness about how we view ourselves in the world, and we can learn that we're no longer the child in the room, we're now the adult in the room. When you have that developmental wound, you kind of get stuck developmentally in where that wound was, still seeking the solution. I tell my clients, it's like you had a play and it was a really bad scene and there wasn't a happy ending, it didn't end. So time is going on and you're still casting Actors into that role because you're still seeking the good ending. So five years later, you're still playing that play and you're casting people and putting them in, putting them in. But it's not giving you that end result. And so we have to lay that play down and start a new play and really recreate our lives, reinvent ourselves. We have to unlearn who we think we were to relearn who we can be. To to transform from the person you were programmed to be into the person you're designed to be. And this is the healing journey. And and it's new and it's different. And that can feel uncomfortable sometimes for people. But it can be very exciting. And it can be very um, rewarding. And we can really accomplish things that we never thought were possible in that journey. And really discover that we can be loved. We can love. And we have authority now. We're not vulnerable like those children where when you're stuck, you still look at the world as they need to be my solution. They still look to the external as a solution. And I think this is a big problem in our society today because we're promoting that the outside world has to do it right for the person to be all right. We're putting all the power externally, all the power and all the responsibility externally now, yes, we want to be the best we can be, be kind, be courteous, be mindful, and do all the changes society that create the most optimal uh, communities. However, we need to remind people that we have power inside us that we need to discover, tap into, and exercise. And when we freeze and we fawn to realize that's the trauma response, but I can heal that and I can begin to assert myself. I can begin to ask for what I want. I begin to give myself permission to make mistakes, to be quirky, to be human, to be the flawed person we all are. We're all perfectly imperfect. And so you can learn how to really give yourself that compassion, self-acceptance, radical acceptance, and then really begin to build a new chapter as the adult that you are as you are also loving the inner child inside you, because now you are the, able to be that parent.
1: Yeah, that was beautifully stated. So how do we do better as therapists on the other side of the seat, instead of telling somebody, hey, it's not your fault? Because I think naturally, even if even if you're not the therapist, even if you're the friend, or you're the family member, or you're the spouse or the partner, we want to sympathize and we want to empathize. And I think naturally. Some of t- sometimes our first reaction might be, hey, that wasn't your fault. That's not you. That's them. So how can we better support that or what would be a better response to that? That statement saying to someone, this is not your fault is engaging
0: the in- intellect, is engaging the modern brain. It requires insight. And it has this assumption that if you understood that, hey, you'll be much better. So if you could think your way through all these things, you would have done it a long time ago. If we could reframe it and it changes everything, we would have done it a long time ago. It's really two components that we need to tackle. We need to tackle the body, the somatic experiencing that we cannot get to with the modern brain. So here's the, here's the analogy I like to use. It's like a, a child who's falling and the child freaks out, looks parent like, Am I broken? You know, I'm feeling pain. I'm feeling all these things. And the parent can either react or respond. Now, in this analogy, the child falling is your autonomic nervous system. It's the issues in the tissues. It's your body. It's all that the body has experienced. The reaction of the response is the modern brain. And what we're doing is we're equipping the modern brain to understand the fall, to reframe it to know and then to know what effective action to take if we don't know what effective action to take if we don't know how to understand that fall then we might react with alarm the child freaks out we freak out and then here we go on that cycle you see that with panic attacks someone has panic attack the person doesn't know why they're like oh my gosh this is hijacking me and they freak out body freaks out more and here we're stuck in this loop But when we do work with people on healing from panic attacks, we're teaching them about this is why your body is having this response. And here is what you can do to intervene with with your physical reaction. So you have that awareness now and you begin to practice the, the mindfulness skills of observing your body's biofeedback so you can recognize when it is fallen And when it's really rattled, you can begin to get attuned to that, and then you can begin to use your skills that you're learning intellectually to intervene in what's going on. So a lot of our experience, some of it's involuntary in our body, and some of it is being exasperated by our thoughts, our core beliefs, our mindset, and that is what most people are tackling. And traditional therapy tackled that solely Now, what a lot of people didn't realize is that what they have found to be most healing when you look at the polyvagal theory is relationship. And if you are in the context of a compassionate relationship that radically accepts you, that can be witness to your story and your pain and still be there for you with love, kindness, acceptance, that heals, that heals that response and can get us to that green light So by default, the therapeutic relationship, we're thinking we're doing all this fancy stuff with the head, but it's the therapist's body that is co-regulating with the client's body that has a huge healing effect on the somatic experiencing of the shame trauma. So if you have a therapist that is really able to co-regulate, to be calm and empathic and connected to your emotional experience, not trying to change it, not trying to tell you to be better, feel better, but really can sit with it and tolerate all the pieces in this loving, compassionate way, it has ripple effects of of healing. And so as people are looking to try to find therapists to work with, you want to find someone that is polyvagal informed, that is um, trained in somatic experiencing, so they know how to tune in and be attuned to the body's experience in the therapy room, understand the impact somatically that is going on with the body. One thing a lot of people don't realize is that for, for me to sit with you and say, tell me what happened. I am requiring that you have a declarative memory and a declarative memory is a memory that has a beginning, a middle and an end where you say, well, you see, when I was this age, this happened. And then that was the outcome, right? But when we're in a trauma state, the part of our brain, technically is a hippocampus, that stores, that codes and stores that information for your declarative memory is offline. It left the building. And so we can't recall the, all the pieces. We don't form a declarative memory. It's like being in a traumatic experience. Like let's say you go in a grocery store and there was a crime that occurred at, but you have a box over your head with little holes and you, and you saw a banana and you smelled um, something. You smelled the, the candles in one aisle, but you, and you saw footsteps and you could hear things, but you have no idea because you couldn't see the whole picture. And that's why people will feel really bad about feeling bad and, and not being able to report. And then therapists who aren't trained in this will say, well, you're being resistant. You're being help seeking, rejecting, and they shame the client for being unable to do something they cannot do. And what happens is when clients experience shame in therapy, but the therapist is not really trained in understanding that, the therapist will experience shame as well. They'll start to think they're ineffective, they're not doing a good job, that they failed in therapy. And when that happens, it starts to go south. I believe that clients do not f- fail therapy it's the therapist or the therapy methods that are failing the client so if it's not a good connection if you if you're trying to make this therapist like you you might be fawning with that therapist if you're if you keep telling that therapist this is my truth and they're telling you you're not thinking right that your truth is not the truth and they're being more corrective this is not the right therapist you need to find someone who can really join with you really uh, try to deeply understand your story in empathic compassionate way and at the same time challenge and give you new skills and tools so you're kind of balancing that uh, synthesis of opposites of understanding and pushing for change at the same time and that's dialectics and I I learned that that philosophy from dialectic behavioral therapy dbt and so you kind of blend some of these things, but I would encourage people who are wanting to heal from shame, from trauma, to really seek out a therapist that doesn't just say they're trauma informed, but to know well how are you trauma informed? You know, have you done somatic experiencing? How are you polyvagal trained? You know, there, there's even this um, method that uh, the fa- the developer of polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges, uh, invented and developed, called Safe Sound Protocol, and it's a music therapy to correct your middle ear muscle that gets stuck in uh, trauma responses. And that muscle is, uh, connected to regulating your nervous system. So I got certified in this, started doing it and I, it's only five hours. People have miraculous outcomes. I accomplish, they accomplish in that five hour time period, more than any therapy I've ever seen anyone have any medication. Right. It is it is the closest thing to a miracle in my book. <laughs> I am wow. like such a big fan of it. And it it's so weird. It's like, how can listening to this music, you know, and you listen to music and it's like, well, these are just songs on the radio. You can't quite figure it out, but you feel your body reacting. And there's lots to say about, about that treatment, but it's uh, there are new interventions like safe sound protocol and other things that help the body to correct where the nervous system is getting stuck. So they can actually get it loosened up and and then benefit from the therapy that they're getting
1: from traditional talk therapist. I love that. And I think it's important too. we live in a society of coaches and there's no, there's no shade against coaches out there because I know a few, one in particular who I've had on my podcast, um, Amy Fiedler, amazing. I freaking love her. But I think it's important when you're dealing with trauma to really make sure that you are working with somebody who has um, education in evidence-based therapies and modalities and, you know, just to make sure that you're working with somebody who really understands trauma, uh, both from a clinical perspective and, you know, making sure that they've had their experience. So I love how you really narrowed that down. I do want to talk about I wouldn't call it controversial, but I think it's a topic that is not talked about enough. I think with Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, we're starting to be more open. Um, But I would love to hear your thoughts on body image and shame, because I think that that is so prevalent with social media, uh, the expectations that are put, especially on women and young teens. We've seen from the research that. Even with Facebook and all that drama that happened, that a lot of the statistics are showing that it it has tripled um, young teen suicide. It has um, worsened how teenagers view themselves and their body images. We know this to be a problem, yet nothing is ever done about it. But I would love to hear your thoughts on what that connection with shame and body images. Yeah, anything that is diet culture is.
0: Um, I would argue, uh, shame bound It is saying that we have to change your body and why. And most uh, people get really focused, hyper-focused on their physical appearance. And so when I stepped out of diet culture about five years ago, and I just made a commitment to myself, I wasn't going to talk about diets, weight, size of clothes, how I would lose weight or anything. I just wouldn't hold those conversations. I literally held no conversation with anything, anybody, because that's all they talked about. (laughs) It seemed like everybody's Mm -hmm. talking about rules of food, food selection, some workout, something like this. And whatever we resist persists. And this is a general principle that if you're looking at, I want to get rid of this in my life, you end up really wrestling with it and getting more of it because the brain says, you're going to deprive me and I need to survive. So I'm going to grab as much as I can to protect myself and you're stressing me out so i'm going to store as much as i can because i'm going into battle so it doesn't work it just doesn't work instead if we focus on becoming um having fun in our life like inviting recess back into our day exercising because it's fun doing fitness things because you like it not because you have to because it feels good not because you're burning those calories you know it's this is kind of we want to have a mindset that's more free of living, free to live rather than thinking of all the rules that we have to have to live our, through our day. And so diet culture is an area where there's lots of micro lots of micro where you see people doing body checking. You know, when people stand before and they're looking at themselves side to side and, you know, you mm-hmm. see a post and someone's like doing their clothes and they're kind yeah. of doing this thing, you know, they're body checking. And yeah. when we see someone else do that, then we start to go, oh, what's going on with me? You know, we get vicarious shame. And I, I worked with a young woman that went to college and she was fine with her body and things, but she had some roommates that were really preoccupied with dieting. And all of a sudden, she became very self-conscious about her food. She didn't want to eat in front of them. She didn't want to. She felt like they were going to reject her because if they didn't accept their bodies, then how are they going to accept hers? Mm-hmm. So, so often it's funny because I'm, I'm a plus size girl. I'm six foot, six one. And I, and oh, I'm, I love that. <laughs>
1: thanks. I love that you're that tall. <laughs> and, and
0: I, and I've had my journey with eating disorders when I was younger. I struggled with it. I've been anorexic. I mean, I've been skin and bones to over 300. I've done the journey. And mm. when I, and I've gotten to a place where it's really, I, I went through the whole body acceptance thing. And felt completely self-accepted, sexy, everything, no matter what my size was. But my knees started going out on me and I started to have high blood pressure and all these things. And so then all of a sudden I had to do something corrective about the extra adipose tissue on my body because of its um, impact on my joints and everything. And so that was really a mind bend because... I wasn't losing because I'm overweight and something's wrong with my appearance, but because I want to protect my health in the future, you know, but not getting Mm -hmm. extreme with it. It's really, it's a real slippery slope to, to have that. And so when, um, when I was doing this body, I accept myself, like sometimes you don't realize that you are. It's kind of goes in the other direction, too, where it's like rebellion, like I'm going to eat this stuff and sugar and things. And and we know from a mental health perspective, this is going to cause mental health problems for you. When someone comes in with anxiety, we talk about, okay, let's reduce caffeine, let's reduce sugar, alcohol, sodas, because those have a negative impact on your mental health. So for me, I had the mistake of thinking, if someone was telling me not to have that, they were body shaming me. And I didn't hear it from the perspective that they were advocating for health because I had a shame-bound view of my body. So I was interpreting it into the lens of my worldview at that time. And so I had to learn how to talk about health without seeing it through the lens of my body and shame and like something's unacceptable about me versus something an area i need to improve and so forth so you have people out there that are talking about the best food choices exercise and if they're in that diet culture talking about rules talking about the goal is to be a certain way we're losing so much of the essence it's reminding me right now we're going to talk about sex girlfriend Because one (laughs) of the things, one of the things we learned in, in sex stuff is that when Johnson Johnson research came around in the seventies and they started researching, how does the body get aroused? How does the body have an orgasm? They became, people became informed and all of a sudden the goal became the orgasm and that, I love that goal. Yeah, I know, but (laughs) it lost all the intimacy Because all intimacy had a lead to orgasm. So no longer were we just holding hands, cuddling, caressing, massaging, without the goal of genital connection. And what that has resulted in is a lot of people having um, performance anxiety, erectile dysfunction, feeling pressure, feeling uh, like, what's wrong with me? I can't have an orgasm. Um, And when they are having love making, it can be more athletic. They, they kind of look at this porn thing as that's how it's supposed to be. And it's mm-hmm. really confusing people about, yes. and they're losing touch with their bodies. They're losing their biofeedback, especially when they're using tools and things, they, they, their body gets desensitized. And so when you're working with couples to help them recover their sexuality, to create intimacy, that is so much more beyond just the orgasm. You're, you're training them to have all these interactions where you're saying avoid gentle connection, just caress, just hold each other. And you kind of are weaving in ways of life that is more fulfilling. So that's kind of what we're doing with food and health. It's like uh, focusing on the orgasm or eating that fast food We're losing the, the, um, the joy that comes in savoring, sitting down for a meal for three to four hours with your friends and talking with them and enjoying all that life could offer in that moment. So when we're focused on diet and workout, it's like eating fast food or just doing athletic sex for orgasm and not having anything else. I mean, it's like you're, you're losing the big picture. So it's really It's really a mind bend to step out of diet culture and, and just everything about diet culture saying your body's not okay. And what body is the standard at that time? What body is the standard, you know, and then you're going to chase that down. And then everyone, we go from skinny mini to you know, getting your, your bootylicious going on and then back to skinny, you know, like, what is it? (laughs) You know? And so, and people chasing those standards down, those are people who have the shame shield that's saying, if I look right, then I will be worthy. If my body's right, I will be worthy. I will be good enough. And the problem with social media is that there's a lot of, um, emphasis on, um, over-sexualizing women and anybody at this point really, and they're just using objectifying people and saying, "I want this is what I value about you. I've, I want to see this part of your body. I want to see this thing." Or you're disgusting. not Why are you on here? And they'll actually bully people. Um, I, I have that happen to a client of mine who is absolutely stunning. She is very very thin, and people were bullying how thin she was and telling her she's so disgusting. Get off. Get off this platform. And it was so hurtful. So we we really have a very dysfunctional mindset that's, it's such a pervasive problem that's being perpetuated on social media when it comes to our body and how we feel acceptable or not acceptable.
1: Yeah, beautifully said. I had a video the other day that I posted, and I had some cleavage showing, and somebody made a comment of, you know, you're supposed to be a therapist, but look at you, you know, you're showing off your boobs, something like that. And I'm like, do you do my breasts make you uncomfortable? Like I, that sounds like a you issue because I have no problem with who I am and what what I'm wearing. But if you do, you may I, I would encourage you to explore that. But you're right. I feel like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. We live in a society that, um, our standards, I think nowadays are highly unrealistic. And uh, obviously, uh, surgery is something that is very new in our society. And there's no shade shade against anyone who gets surgery. I've done it. I listen, I breastfed, I have birthed a human, I did it myself. And did it make me feel better? Yeah, sure. But was it the end all? No, I had to really stop and like, I'm still coping and dealing with things and being realistic about the issues that I still struggle with. Um, I had a guest uh, a that came on. Um, oh, my gosh, I can't. Dr. Morgan Francis. Oh, she's amazing. My she's was yeah. I swear to you, it's still one of my favorite episodes that I've done to date. Um, just the knowledge base that she has on body and, and body image. And we talked about the fitness industry. And that's something that I was heavily into. And I never looked at it as something that was I would say is a disorder because I was counting every calorie. If I didn't get a workout in, I shamed myself. If I didn't, if I missed a meal, I was shaming myself. If I didn't eat enough or eat too little, I was shaming myself. And it got to a point where my daughter said, Mommy, when are we going to be able to go out and have fun? And I think that was to the point when I finally was like, Okay, I have to do something different. This is a problem. And it's been five years since I've competed and since I was doing that. I still struggle to this day. I still find myself looking at myself in the mirror, like, oh, I'm gaining a little like pudge here or I'm not muscular enough here. And it's still something that six years later at 36 years old that I'm still struggling with. And so I totally validate that. And I think that social media does not make it easy. Another thing I wrote down to your point since we were talking about sex, is the porn industry. Um, there's no shade against porn. I think that we live in a pretty open society now, and I think that if you you know, want to try new things, go for it. But I think that porn has made things very unrealistic. I I can guarantee you, you do a survey of most women. Most women would say that the typical porn episodes are not usually pleasurable to women. There's a lot of ethical porn that's out there that is geared towards pleasure towards women that I do think is more realistic. And I've seen them and I'm like, okay, that, that to me is more realistic. And if I'm going to recommend any porn, especially to clients or couples, I would recommend those. And I think too, a lot of people, including myself, my first experience with a sexual encounter was a porn. I remember finding one at my dad's house. I wanna say I was like maybe five. And I remember putting the the VHS player in because that's 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 what it was. And I remember pushing play and I vividly remember the porn. Till this day, I remember exactly what they said, the cheesy intro, and what happened after. And that was my experience into what sex was. And I think that sex has become a performance for some people. And we see such a disconnect, especially with women. And I don't know the exact statistics, but this is, when I saw the statistics of how many women cannot achieve orgasm during sex astounded me. I was like, I thought everybody had orgasms. And when I saw that, I was like, I didn't know that there's such a high percentage of women that either can't achieve orgasm during sex or who have never achieved one at all. It's mind yes. blowing. Yes. And, and I think it has to do with their body image, maybe what they're told to do, what they think sex is also their anatomy,
0: because some people have clitorises that are closer to the vaginal opening than others, and some get more stimulation where it's located than others. So you have a lot of anatomy issues that go into whether someone can get adequate clitoral stimulation through intercourse only. So there's lots mm. of pieces to it that uh, play a role in the one's ability to achieve that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing. And I I also, too, I just wonder, you know, when people are listening to this and they're they're trying to figure out, okay yes, I deal with shame. I know I deal with it. Where does somebody even start? I think listening to this podcast, you're doing the right thing. This is a start. But if somebody really wants to learn more about this or start exploring their own trauma responses or even their responses to shame and how they're feeling or even a holistic way of doing that, what would you suggest Mm -hmm. for them? Well, first, I want to say that shame free is shame
0: resilience, which means that it's not that we're not going to experience shame. It's not that we're going to remember, oh, am I gaining weight and having a moment like that if we've been had that in our life at any point in time or have a memory of a trauma or have a response or a panic or something The goal isn't to eliminate that. We can't. It's part of our body. It's part of our our journey. I tell my clients, if you get a timeline from birth till now and take every thought you've ever felt, every feeling you've ever felt and have it on that, take that, wrap it around. That's your conveyor belt that comes to the gates of your mind. And it will bring a memory. It will bring a feeling that if you've ever had it, it will visit you. Some visit you every hour, some once a day, some once a month, once every five years, Once every 20 years, you know, it it changes. So what we're doing is not changing what we see. We're changing where we direct our attention and we're equipping ourselves on a strategy of what to do when that presents. So expecting ourselves to not ever feel body shame or not having a shame response or trauma response is like expecting the weather forecast to be sunny every day from now on, like no storms ever. Right, But instead, we know, oh, when the rain comes, we do this. We get an umbrella, we change the way we dress. When there's going to be snow, we know what to do. It's hot, we know what to do. So that's what we're learning in therapy is how to respond like the parent responding to the baby and to reframe our shame experience away from a personal narrative, away from a shaming narrative and more from a compassionate narrative that is informed about the body. So what we want to do is first understand that the healing journey is not eliminating the problem. It's we change the experience of it with the way we respond to it. It might not be as intense. It's kind of like people with grief. You know, if, you, if someone died recently, people are really, it's really charged when they talk about it, right? But 10 years later, if they've healed from that... They'll remember it and they'll be sad and they'll be like, man, I miss that person. And I remember and that was just terrible, but it's not raw. They're not fused with that as if it's happening right now. So that's kind of what we're doing. We can experience the, the body checking and at the same time be aware, oh, that's the body checking that gets activated when something triggers me in this way. So we have that understanding and we must, must learn how to practice self-radical acceptance. And, And what radical is, is it's saying it's not regular acceptance. We say, it's okay. I approve. I agree. I give it permission. It is saying it is what it is. I accept that in this moment, this moment is what it is. And what most people do is they demand that the moment should be how they think it ought to be, must be, should be, uh, what's just right, fair, all that stuff. And they're resisting the reality that is presenting. Instead, we want to say, well, I have this in this moment. So what is the most effective action to take given these variables? And that requires that we have skills that we know we have options. We've built up our tool bag and a lot of people like what happens with shame is we're given unrealistic expectations and we're not adequately equipped, but we're expected to be. So people mm-hmm. will expect themselves to be these adults that are wise and know what to do and have no idea what to do because never, they never develop their emotional literacy, their emotional intelligence, their skills for distress tolerance, for emotion regulation, for interpersonal uh, resolution. They just didn't develop that. So they have a hammer and they're using it everywhere they go. And when it doesn't work because life requires a screwdriver, then they think, see, something really is wrong with me. Shame tells you to not show anyone, not get help. So we are shame free when we seek help, when we say, all right, I can't do this by myself. I don't know what's going on. And I need someone from the sidelines that has a unique perspective that I can't have because I'm in the game. When you're in the painting, you can't see the painting. When you're on the court, you cannot see your body. I cannot see the back of my head right now but if i turn around you will <laughs> right so so we need another perspective from that can only come from the outside but we don't want to give the outside the authority to define us if i ran a job uh, a job what do you call it like an advertisement saying i'm hiring for this job no one would meet the job qualifications to determine my my value and my identity that is such a spiritual journal, that is a personal journal journey, but we do want to find people that are on our team that really want the best for us, and speak life into us, and build us up, and, and they'll give us uh, correction, or, or helpful feedback, or a different point of view. It doesn't mean they have to agree with you, or allow you to do something that could potentially be destructive, or... or um, like not speak to it kind of thing. People that really care about you are going to say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Let's talk about this, you know? So sometimes love does have hard conversations and most people associate love with feeling good. So it's mm-hmm. not feeling good. Love, so love sometimes says, no, it says it has to advocate, has to say the hard things sometimes. And, and that can be a hard thing to do. So most people, what they'll do, they don't accept themselves. And they think if by me being hard on myself, somehow I'm going to make something better happen. Doesn't work that way. What you resist persists. You get critical yourself. You're going to get more criticism. So we have to learn how to practice radical self-acceptance. It says, regardless of my journey, regardless of what's going on, I fully and totally accept myself as a human that I am. I am growing. I am changing. I am equipping my, I'm learning and I'm going to get better, but I accept myself with compassion. So you have self-acceptance and you have, you have to learn self-compassion. And most people think self-love and self-compassion is a feeling. So they wait till they feel it in order to do it. But in this context, it's an adjective or it's a verb. It's an action. It's how you go about loving someone. When you're loving to someone, you're kind to them. So you commit to being kind to yourself in your inner dialogue. When you love someone, you want the best for them. So you commit to yourself to support and promote the best for you. When you love someone, you want the best opportunities for them. So you create the best opportunities for you. So you just think about what is my actions when I'm loving someone. That is how I will love myself. So self-love is a, a guidance of emotions rather than a following of emotions. If people wait till they feel it, they'll be waiting a long time. So instead we want to guide our feelings and we're going to say, okay, I'm going to act in a way that is loving, a loving way. And this is going to help me to grow. It's like when you look at classrooms with kids and teachers who build them up with words and encourage them and point out what, celebrate their failures, celebrate their effort and all those things, you get the best performance from the kids. But the teachers and coaches that are critical, be, shaming, belittling, judging, they just get more of it. So it's a general principle that you have to make sure your thoughts and your actions are aligned with where you want to go in your future. If you're thinking these bad things, you're aligning that with a negative future, you know? And this is hard because trauma response, when that's activated, we're only gonna think the negative. That, that part of, it's like hiking trails. We're on the negative hiking trail. It, it's It's the path that, the neural pathway that we're walking. So we have to switch neural pathways and it kind of goes against the grain because we have to open up a new trail And so it's very hard for people to have positive thoughts and positive feelings when they're in a negative state, but we can create that through intentional effort. It takes 63 days to create a new neural pathway. So by practicing thinking different, behaving different, uh, and evoking different emotions and feelings in our body, we can actually reshape our brain. Mm-hmm. So we want to have a realistic expectation about shame. We want to embrace the concept of self-acceptance, knowing that that is going to support your goal. Self-compassion. It's really important to know that every single person has shame. There's no exception. People think they don't have shame. We have shame. We call it people-pleasing. We call it all sorts of things. Body body image issues, uh, low self-esteem, social anxiety. The, the, all of that is shame. We soothe shame with alcohol, our vices, our compulsive behaviors. We hide from shame with all our performance and things we glue our identity to and measure our value with. Everyone has it. So we just want to begin to learn about self-compassion, learn about self-acceptance, and really learn about how your brain and your body works because that's leading. That's leading before your modern brain. So many times when people can't make the change they want, and they're stuck, it, it is very likely that they're having a somatic experience that needs to get corrected and attended to, so that they can then benefit from the cognitive changes that
1: they're making. I love that. I, it's beautiful. And neuroplasticity, the ability of the brains, uh, the brain to be able to change is an amazing thing. So I love that you touched on that. I want to talk about your book, because you wrote a book, Christian Journal for for excuse me, Christian Journal for Women with Anxiety. I'm really curious as to the context of this and and what your thoughts are with the connections of spirituality and mental health, because I thought the title was really intriguing. I'm like, I I (laughs) want to check this book out. Well, I didn't come up with that title. I thought, you know, at the time I, I just got done doing a
0: documentary for um, LGBTQ plus uh, faith based communities talking about shame. And this comes out. And I'm just like, oh, goodness, I hope people are getting the right idea. But because one of the environments that we get shame the most is in religious institutions and religious mm-hmm. circles. So I'm very passionate about helping people heal from religious trauma and and learning how that they don't have to become. Atheists to heal from that like you, I I really want people to connect with their spiritual life and their spiritual walk. We know through research what regardless of what someone's faith structure is, or spiritual practice, spiritual practices are gold for our mental health. It's, yes. it's everything. And, you know, like as an empath, like this is everything to being in tune and, and psychic having like in Christian circles, we'll call it having the gift of discernment, you know, or, or having the gift of knowledge. It's very similar. You get this, this knowledge, but you know how people use it's all different. And so, and all these things are different worldviews. Not all, all believers are going to have the same doctrinal ideas. So what I find is that in Christian circles or religious groups, When someone is struggling, they are given spiritual explanations and spiritual solutions. However, we need to recognize that there is a medical component. I cannot, I can pray and that can be very good for me. Praying is good vagal tone exercise. It strengthens up your green light, but it's, but I still might have high blood pressure. I still might have diabetes. I still might not have my eyesight or be able to walk. And or have epilepsy. And historically, what we don't understand, we shame, blame and stigmatize. And the religious groups not only shame, blame and stigmatize things they don't understand. Like they'll say things like, well, have you prayed? You know, you're depressed, you're anxious. Have you prayed? And persons like my knees are raw. I've been praying so much, you know, and then they start thinking, God, do you hate me? Like what kind of God Mm -hmm. would do this to me? Start thinking God is sadistic and just thinking, feeling so alone and so abandoned and so not understood and then ashamed that you're not feeling the gifts of the Holy Spirit, joy, peace, all these things, right? And this is very Western doctrinal uh, American church teaching, emphasizing the, um, the positive emotions you have of the relationship with God. And when you're in recovery circles, they talk about how a lot of people turn to religion like they turn to alcohol and drugs. They want emotional relief. And so they have this requirement and a demand on God that if I have a relationship with you, you're going to make me feel better. So when you don't make me feel better, bye-bye, I don't believe in you anymore, right? And that, that's really going to misguide people. It's not about that. We are going to have tough feelings in life, and we are going to believe in God and believe in God's presence and feel, not, not have answers to prayers, not have things make sense have really difficult things happen to us, tragedies befall us. And that doesn't mean that we are abandoned by God, or you're not praying well enough, or you don't have enough faith, or you don't have enough belief it means you're human in this world. And this is just what we experience. And um, if someone's listening, if someone subscribes to a Judeo Christian thing, there's no, there's no promise that's going to be otherwise, you know, it's saying, yeah, life has hardships. And any other religion in the world acknowledges hardships. So it's not about eliminating the hardships, but it's really about having a strategy for our mindset through hardships. And having an internal resource that we can tap into to give us a a bigger sense uh, to see the forest through the trees rather than getting consumed In the moment of where we're at, we, we don't want to get so consumed with emotions or so cut off from emotions. We want to be in that sweet middle spot where we're using all ways of knowing, knowing through emotional experience and through, you know, objective information and our intuition and so forth. So in this book, I was approached by this publisher who asked me to write this um, for faith-based communities. And what happens in a lot of those religious circles is they teach people not to get teaching from non-believers, because then they're going to be deceived. It's going to be false teaching, false doctrine, humanism. So people become very, very fearful of, can I trust this source? Can I trust that you share my worldview and you're not going to teach me some new age thing or whatever? And so what I've done in this book is I've integrated Like, here's faith. I get it. You can trust this. I I have the same worldview as you. It, I might, it might be, I, I, I struggle coming out as a Christian. I felt like they, they um, outed me with this book (laughs) because (laughs) my audience is, is very, I mean, I'm the shame busting psychologist. So you can imagine my audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, the people that have been impacted by shame and I'm not out there as a, as that's not my brand necessarily on these platforms. Right. But I have seminary training. I did do. I have um, a lot of experience and personal experience, but I don't come out with it because I feel that people have an idea what that means, and it doesn't reflect me. So, um, so what I've done is said yes, is trusted resource, and I do integrate and show how these scientific findings connect with the wisdom of Scripture, and so I really emphasize. This is a medical condition. Anxiety is somatic. It's in your body. It affects your nervous system. And you will be hurt if people are telling you otherwise. And at the same time, your faith can help relieve some of your anxiety experience. You can incorporate your spiritual journey in your healing journey. But it's so important to understand what is evidence-based and best practice so I integrate evidence-based best practice with like a faith structure. And the publisher wanted to make sure that it was inclusive. So it's not doctrinally leaning, but inclusive to all faith um, communities. So I some of my friends, a lot of my friends on other psychologists and stuff um, are not of the same faith. And I gave them the book to review and they were like, oh my gosh, like, even though it says it's Christian, like, this is so good. (laughs) They're saying it has all this science and all this. So you'll see when you read it, it's not a Bible devotion. It's not a morning devotional. It's really saying, I get it. I get that you have this walk and you're struggling with your body. And here's what will help you. Here's what you need to know about how your body works and and how you can tackle it from your, um, from diet liquids, sleep, nervous system, bagel tone exercises, to four square breathing, to um, quieting the mind, mental vacations. I have all these exercises in it to help inform like that they can actually apply to help them work through their um, anxiety. But the publisher told me I couldn't talk about I couldn't write for two years anything that was substantially similar. So there's no shame in this book because that's my baby and I'm going to write about it. And I didn't want them (laughs) to like silence me. So I think a lot of people were expecting me to come out with something shame, but it just, this was an opportunity that presented and I did it. And uh, that's what it is, integration to help people um, support their spiritual life while they're also healing the medical condition of their anxiety.
1: I love that and we'll definitely link the book for everyone who is interested in getting a copy of that as well as all your social media platforms. Um, Dr. Sean Horn, thank you so I I I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Doctor, is it do you go by Dr. Sean or Dr. Yeah, Horn? Yeah. Well, so, in my
0: in my practice, <laughs> see, I teach here at the medical school and I also my practice so the way I separate it is I'm Dr. Horn in Spokane and I'm Dr. Okay. Sean <laughs> everywhere else. So, like when I present Okay, I'm going to so, go with
1: Dr. Sean. Sean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, uh, Dr. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. I just appreciate your time and your energy and all of your nuggets of wisdom. You are amazing, and I feel like I'm I'm on a radio show because you have that like that voice that's just very radio. But thank, uh, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much.